Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of the Gut Doctor Podcast. Today, we continue our GI 101 series, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Eric Vecchio to our show. Dr. Vecchio is a gastroenterology fellow at the University of Connecticut, and he's going to educate us today on liver diseases specific to pregnancy. Eric, thank you for joining me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, Before we get into liver pathology during pregnancy, I want to remind our audience that any liver disease, of course, is possible during pregnancy, but today we're going to only focus or discuss those that only affect pregnant women, which means that, you know, these diseases are only possible in pregnancy. Um, Eric, what should we as providers be thinking of when we see abnormal LFTs in a pregnant patient? So you want to think about how the chemistries will change during the physiologic state of pregnancy. So what I would say is that with the AST, the ALT, the bilirubin, and the PT and INR, those won't change. So those you can interpret as normal. However, with the albumin and the hemoglobin, you're going to notice those are going to be decreased as a result of hemodilution. And then you'll notice that the alkaline phosphatase can be up near the second up, uh, upper limit of normal. And as well as the alpha pedoprotein can be increased as those are both produced by the placenta. So um, otherwise, more important clues as a result, uh, essentially, um, otherwise more important clues as to the etiology of elevated liver chemistries would be the timing of pregnancy, as well as the uh, type of the, of the pattern. And so you want to keep in mind the breaks between the first and second trimester, which would be the 12 weeks. And then between the second and third trimester, which I find to think about is 29 weeks. The most common uh, pathologic cause of elevated liver chemistries in the first trimester would be hyperemesis gravidarum. I see. So, so some LFT changes obviously are going to be normal and expected during pregnancy, but if there's a, a rise above those expected variances in the first trimester, you think of hyperemesis gravidarum. So how does hyperemesis gravidarum present and how do we manage it? So hyperemesis gravidarum typically presents between eight and 12 weeks in the first trimester, and it'll usually resolve by week 20 in the second trimester. In some patients, it's more rare, Will it'll continue throughout pregnancy. And it's not just the presence of nausea and vomiting. That's very common, up to 90% of patients, 50 to 90% of, of pregnant patients. However, in, in 2%, you have these, this persistent nausea and vomiting, and that's the second most common cause for hospitalization in pregnant women other than preterm labor. So it's just focus on that persistence. And then you'll also notice weight loss, dehydration, ketosis. And this is in more common in patients with multiple gestations, trophoblastic, trophoblastic disease, diabetes, higher BMIs, patients with history of migraines and a female fetus. And you'll notice that the liver chemistries will rise into the kind of 200 range, and they can have a hyperbilirubinemia that's usually <clears throat> less than four. And uh, the management of hyperemesis gravidarum is largely supportive. Um, <clears throat> the liver tests will usually improve when the vomiting stops. So you're going to want to focus on symptomatic management, which we'll discuss, as well as thiamine and folate supplementation 
since these patients can be at risk for Wernicke encephalopathy as any malnourished patient can. So you can think about sometimes keeping them NPO for a couple of days if they can't tolerate any food or small sips that of food would or essentially like low fat meals. Using carbohydrates to give them some calories it kind of makes me think of gastroparesis. And then you can actually give them uh, ginger, uh, which has actually been shown in, in double-blinded trials to help with uh, the nausea. But usually our, our OBGYN colleagues have already given them those. I can run through some antiemetics, but there's a really nice uh, decision tree, which I would refer to by the ACE, ACOG and 2018, which would guide you through that as well. So, so again, so I guess take on point. Nausea vomiting is common in pregnancy, as we all know, but if it's persistent in the first trimester and you see LFTs getting the 200 range, you start thinking of hyperemesis gravidarum, uh, which is mostly managed conservatively. I'm a huge fan of ginger. I recommend ginger for pretty much every GI condition. Um, so, you know, ginger here as well will work. So, so that's the first trimester. Uh, what is a common cause of elevated LFTs in the second trimester? Yeah, so once, once you get past the 12-week mark and you're heading into the second trimester, then I would start thinking about the intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. So this usually pre presents in the uh, late second trimester um, into the third trimester, around 28 weeks and onward. And this is actually the most common uh, liver disorder unique to pregnancy. It's still not that common. It's occurring in 0.2 to 0.3% of the pregnancies in the U.S. Uh, the liver involvement will be in the form of cholestasis, and it's actually associated with hepatitis C and gallstones. And you'll usually see patients with this intense pruritus that's mainly on the palms and soles. And that's a cardinal feature it really has to be present to kind of go down this road. And uh, sometimes it's worse at night causing insomnia. And then you'll get the typical cholestatic symptoms with nausea, anorexia, fatigue, and sometimes right upper quadrant pain and changes in urine and stool. Um, go ahead. No. So I, I didn't know about the palms and soles. So, the, you know, that's very interesting. I did not, did not remember that. So palm and soles, pruritus, intense pruritus, second trimester, you test some of your ICP. Um, yep. Any specific way you treat that pruritus? You know, obviously, um, if it's that intense in the palms and soles, is there any way to manage it? Yeah. So I, I would say that specifically, I would go for the, the once you diagnose the um, uh, intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy by doing the uh, test for the bile acids, the total serum bile acids, which have to be fasting, and you see that that level is above uh, 10, then you made that diagnosis in these patients. Um, you actually sometimes also see uh, like this excoriation, they call it dermatitis artifacta, um, which is like a self-inflicted linear rash from that. But um, you, I would probably treat them with ursodeoxycholic acid, and that's usually dose 10 to 15 megs per keg of the maternal body weight. You can actually go up to 21 and it's been some reports of that. Uh, and that will reduce the total serum bile acids and there's no harm to the fetus. It can sometimes cause some nausea and vomiting and diarrhea. And then you, the treatment after that would be to encourage delivery at 37 weeks as afterwards there is a, an increased risk of fetal death that have been showed in studies. But if that doesn't work, if the ursodeoxycholic acid doesn't work, you can add this uh, antihistamine chlorpheniramine and then you can actually also add rifampin, which is 70, 77% effective per meta-analysis in patients that were having trouble getting control with our acetyoxicolic acid. Oh, okay. That, that, I, very helpful. So we went from a more or less benign 
diagnosis of hyperemesis gravidarum to obviously now we're getting along the spectrum of more serious conditions like ICP that could require, you know, early delivery. Uh, so we discussed uh, hyperemesis gravidarum, ICP. That leaves us with one of my um, all-time favorite acronyms from uh, medical school, HELP, um, and also uh, acute fatty liver disease of pregnancy. So what are these conditions? Yeah, so with HELP and preeclampsia, all, all kind of that category, the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, I'll start off with those, and that's preeclampsia, eclampsia, and the HELP syndrome. And so for the these hypertensive disorders, these are usually presenting again in the second trimester. And this is occurring in about three or three to 5% of pregnancies, usually noted with hypertension above 140 over 90 and proteinuria. And then when you get into organ dysfunction, that's when you get severe preeclampsia and hepatomegaly and hepatocellular injuries can actually count towards that. This can happen in patients that are nulliparous or obese or have diabetes, and then some patients with antiphospholipid syndrome and SLE or family history are at higher risk. The symptoms, you'll notice that these kind of all start to blend together. So you kind of have to pick out the timing once again, but nausea and vomiting in half the patients get epigastric pain, right upper quadrant pain that can be from capsular stretch. You'll then notice higher elevations in the AST and ALT which can be up to 10 to 20 fold around the thousands. And then a billy can go up to up to five, but not usually higher than that. And that's attributed to vasoconstriction and fiber and precipitation uh, within the hepatic vasculature. And so that's going to kind of lead you down looking for complications. You can look for like a right upper quadrant ultrasound, or I guess in this case as well, if the patient is decompensated, you would consider cross-sectional imaging like a CT. And we can talk a little bit more about the risks of that, but um, this is a, these are much more, much scarier syndromes and you can have severe complications with uh, hematomas underneath the liver capsule, even hepatic rupture. These, these need to be referred to IR or, you know, diagnosed, uh, very quickly. Liver failure has also been reported and it's recommended that patients have delivery at 34 weeks. And once the delivery is performed and then that's curative for these syndromes. Going into the uh, HELP syndrome, this is actually considered a complication of preeclampsia, and it occurs in uh, 10% of patients with preeclampsia, and that's the HELP syndrome is the hemolysis, uh, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. Once again, pretty rare. It's uh, 0.2 to 0.6% of pregnancies. It can actually occur in the first week postpartum, so they don't actually have to be pregnant, but need to be you know, right after or postpartum. And then uh, you can get the same right upper quadrant pain, epigastric pain, as well as these generalized headaches, malaise, nausea, vomiting, and edema. You'll see uh, thrombocytopenia, some, sometimes less than 100,000, AST and ALT, usually in the 500s range, and then elevations in billion LDH as well. And going into the treatment, this is mostly, I think, managed by OBGYN under what's called the Mississippi Protocol. And that's when they give antihypertensives, keeping the pressures below 160, magnesium sulfate, and dexamethasone for helping with thrombocytopenia. And once again, the delivery at 34 weeks. And then you can actually trend uh, the platelet count and the LDH, and that can be predictive of the rate of recovery from this illness. Well, so, you know, what I've got so far from, you know, talking to you is that 
the timing of pregnancy really helps dictate what condition you need to think of. And obviously the, the acute rise in LFTs, you know, early in hyperemesis gravidum was just in the 200s. Now you're talking thousands, you know, with some of these syndromes. And of course, with these increasing LFTs and later on trimesters, you're taking more, you're thinking more severe complications and outcomes. So, you know, you mentioned your OB. Yeah. So I think, you know, we talked about this when I, APR and Willen and I had this conversation on the the podcast about IBD in pregnancy. And I think this is where really teamwork with MFM uh, and your OBs really starts playing a huge role because uh, it's going to be a multidisciplinary approach here. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, you know, avoiding CTs. Uh, any roles for, you know, fiber scans or uh, liver biopsy at any point? You know, liver biopsy obviously being invasive. You mentioned IR. Uh, what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I would say that uh, with, you know, we, we know about the ultrasound, but with CT, I think that since it's a quick test, even though there is ionizing radiation and the, the highest risk is during the first trimester, 8 to 15 weeks, um, you can use iodinated contrast. There's no teratogenicity. However, you want to reserve this for the patient that's, you know, in extremis or decompensating in front of you. It's, you kind of think of the risk and benefit if you're going to save, you know, the, the mother from a hepatic rupture, you know, bleeding, bleeding out from that, that, you know, timing the diagnosis would be, would be crucial. And, you know, if someone is going to need an angiogram, they're going to ex- need to be exposed to some radio, radio you know, an angiogram or a, a embolization, but that they're going to need to be exposed to radiation either way, but it's, it's kind of risk benefit, but uh, if you can avoid it, you can go to an MRI again, it's just not going to be as, um, uh, as quick. And then you can't use the gadolinium because that'll cross the placenta and, and kind of go into the amniotic, amniotic fluid. Uh, elastography is not recommended. I think that's probably due to the probably not really hepatic congestion, but maybe the increase in blood volume that will change the, the measurements. So that hasn't really been evaluated in pregnancy. And then a liver biopsy can be performed in pregnancy. That's, that's considered um, uh, acceptable. Interesting. I, I didn't realize that uh, osography or fiber skin would, you know, it, may, it makes sense. It makes sense what you just said. So I hadn't thought of that before. Eric, thank you so much. Um, I, I feel like this was a great reminder and refresher course for me uh, with LFTs, you know, in pregnancy. And, you know, really appreciate you navigating us through this complicated topic in a relatively short period of time. Uh, so for the, for the Gut Doctor podcast, I'm Dr. Neil Parikh, and I will see you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gut Doctor Podcast. For additional information about today's topic, please visit ConnecticutGI.org. Your feedback is important to us, so please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Gut Doctor, and if you think you may need to see a gastroenterologist, just trust your gut.